Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hiya, it's Claire. Hello, it's Zoe. Welcome to episode seven of our podcast, Witches of Scotland. We'd like to open today saying thanks so much to all our growing listeners. We've actually got thousands of people tuning in now. 20% of them are from the US, 64% are from here in the United Kingdom, 4% from Australia, Canada and Germany. We've also got listeners from Switzerland, France, New Zealand, Belgium, Ireland, Spain, Malaysia, Norway, Russia and Thailand. So this is obviously something that is engaging with people's interests right across the world please do get in contact with us on Twitter and Instagram and let us know what you think. Are there any particular topics you'd like us to cover? Also, please can you rate us? It only takes a couple of seconds and it really does help us boost our numbers so we can have more people involved in the campaign so we're more likely to achieve that. You don't have to write anything, just hit five stars, she asked rather cheekily. People have asked how they can help and the answer at the moment is really just spreading the word about the campaign. That is the most helpful thing for us so that when we get to the practical stages, which is essentially, is first of all, engaging our politicians. We want as many people as possible to know and support the campaign so it has the, really the very best chance of success. So if you go to our website, which is www.witchesofscotland.com and sign up so we can keep you updated when we get to the next stage of the campaign. You can also link to us on Instagram and Twitter from there. So first of all this week, let's have a look at the witches that we're going to focus on this week. You've been digging away, Claire, and have done some great research, haven't you? Yes, I should say from the start that the research that I've been doing, I've used the source book of Scottish Witchcraft, Mm -hmm. which there's a link to on the website. I have also used the survey of Scottish Witchcraft, which, as you'll recall, Professor Julian Goodyear, who's been on before, director of that, and Louise Yeoman, co-director. And I've also been using Julian's book, which is about European witchcraft. And we'll put a link to that in as well, just so you know where all this information is coming from. So you can do your own research. Yeah, because I have noticed people talking about it on Twitter and saying that they've been reading various different books. So it it is quite nice. I think people are going ahead then and doing their own research, which is really interesting because we're certainly learning new things all the time, aren't we? It is. It is. And it's great to bring these women's stories, however sad, back into consciousness. I think it's great that people want to get engaged and do their own work on it. Today, we're going to head back to, in fact, Beatrix Leslie. That was one of the first women that we spoke about. But I found out a wee bit more about her. And I think it's quite interesting because it ties in also with a man called John Kincaid, Mm -hmm. who was called a pricker of witches who tortured women or who gave evidence saying that he had found proof that they were a witch. Right. Beatrix Leslie 
we told you on the last occasion was a woman who was found guilty and executed on the 3rd September 1661. What I didn't know then, but I came to know when I was looking up John Kincaid, was we found more information about Beatrix. She was an elderly woman. She was in her 80s and she helped women who were giving birth. She was a a precursor to a, a midwife and she was accused of witchcraft and we found out why she was accused of witchcraft and it said that two girls had died after being struck by a section of roof falling in a coal pit. They had been in an argument with Leslie over the killing of her cat. The really sad thing about that of course is that it's people just putting a narrative or a story I suppose on events that had happened. Two girls died after effectively a roof falling in on them and people said, oh, well, they argued with Leslie. Yes, they have an explanation for why this horrible, random, tragic thing happened. Indeed, indeed. But the reason that I found out about this was because I was actually not looking at her details at that point at all, but I was looking at John Kincaid. He was probably, Zoe, the most famous witch pricker. What happened was if a witch was suspected, he would come in with witch pricking instruments, which were effectively like long needles. And he would carry out tests on these women to find out whether or not they were witches. And these tests include checking them for marks and also pricking them with these needles. And the idea was that if they were pricked with these needles, then they wouldn't bleed. So it depended on whether or not they would bleed. But what I found out when I was researching John Kincaid is that in the case of Beatrix Leslie, he actually carried out a different sort of test. Now, you'll excuse me because I don't know how to pronounce this. It's spelt Beerich, B-I-E-R-R-I-C-H-T. And the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft says that what this is, is that a dead body will bleed when touched by a person who was guilty of their murder. God. Exactly. So this test was carried out on Beatrix. She was taken, presumably, to where these girls were, and she was forced, presumably, to touch them. And John Kincaid recorded that she had passed the test for being a witch, as it were, and that she was guilty of the murder. So he pricked her, it said, to find the devil's mark, to see if this mark came up. Mm -hmm. And also he undertook carrying out this beerecht to see whether or not the corpse bled. Now, Beatrix was found guilty with the assistance of John Kincaid. And as we know, she was declared guilty after trial and executed. What is interesting, particularly about John Kincaid, is that along with John Dick, he was probably the busiest of the Scottish witch prickers. His name comes up along with another man called John Dick. But what is unusual about John Kincaid was that he himself was accused of cruel practices in his work. During his time as a witch pricker, he was taken to the Edinburgh Tollbooth and imprisoned. And while imprisoned, I don't know whether or not he was tortured, he admitted that he'd employed deception when testing for signs of witchcraft. Good Lord. So, exactly. So, you have there, even at that time, 
when he's been accused of cruel practices, he's been locked up himself. He's possibly been tortured himself, as perhaps would be the norm at that time. But he actually admitted to employing deception, to lying when testing for signs of witchcraft. And I wonder what happened to him next then? I mean, was he was he held accountable for this then? <laughs> well, that's a good question, Zoe, as to whether or not he was held accountable. Because what happened is, after only two months in custody, he appealed to the Lord Justice General, that's Scotland's highest judge, and he appealed to be released on the basis that he was elderly. One remembers that Beatrix Leslie was an elderly woman herself. Yeah. And he was elderly and that he was ill and wouldn't survive for long. So, I know, so the Lord Justice General gave him his freedom under a bail of a thousand pounds, a thousand Scottish pounds. Now, at the time, that was a huge amount of money and yeah. how rich he would have been. So he was given his freedom under a bail and he was let out on the condition, a bail condition, that he mustn't be involved in any unauthorised torture. <laughs> Or pricking of witches. Can you believe that? But authorised torture was okay. It was just yeah. a bit sort of freelance as cash it, in hand. Exactly. No sidelines in torture. When I came across that, I thought, an innocent woman has been put to death. A man who admits to lying about the fact that he has made up things when he has tortured women gets two months in the jail and has to promise not to do any pricking again. God's sake. Honestly. I mean, it's just no wonder that it still resonates today. You still feel that the fact that he just sort of squeaked out of this just because of his money and his status and his sex, just appalling. Ugh. Absolutely. Who is our next witch for today? Our next witch, we know very little about her at all, and we only have the barest details. She is Agnes Stoddart. Mm -hmm. She was convicted after trial, and she was executed on the 30th of November, 1643. She was from Perth, she was female, and she was unmarried. And that's all we know about Agnes. Oh, poor Agnes. I know. Our next witch, I think you'll recall, Zoe, we had a bit of a chat about it on Twitter, mm -hmm. was Janet Horn, sometimes called the Dornach Witch. Yep. She was convicted in the June of 1727. And perhaps she is best remembered because she was the last woman to be executed as a witch in Scotland. She, unfortunately for poor Janet, showed signs of senility. And she also had a daughter, and her daughter had what we now refer to as limb differences on her hands and feet. But her neighbours very cruelly accused Janet of having used her daughter as a pony to ride to the devil, where she had her shod by him. So. I know. Yeah, they were reading into someone's physical appearance the fact that they had some involvement with the devil and came up with these words. And I don't know if you saw, Zoe, this week in the news that Roald Dahl's The Witches seem to fall foul of limb differences as well. Oh, that's because they changed it, didn't they? Where in the original book, Dahl described the witches, I think, as having no toes and they had to wear, they, there's something strange about their feet anyway, something unusual about their feet and they had claws instead of fingers and they were bald, they wore, they wore um, wigs. I remember the film absolutely terrified my children when they were wee. His representation of witches was obviously that, you know, the stereotype of the evil coven of women coming together to kill all the children. 
But this new adaptation, they've made an alteration to that, haven't they? And they've made the witches have less fingers than five, I think. Yes, they've made the witches have three fingers. The witches are still bald, but quite rightly, some people took to Twitter and used the social media hashtag not a witch, if anyone wants to look it up. British Paralympic medalist Amy Marin said, please educate yourself on limb differences and support the idea that hashtag you're not a witch because you look different. You can also actively support limb difference community by using words that describe us as people, as it's not the difference that defines us. Mm -hmm. So it's really it's really interesting that the idea that differences separate you, there's a resonance with that in people's minds. And uh, it's great that it's being called out, I think. It's very thought provoking about the idea of the ways in which the women, you know, the witches that we are discussing, the women that were accused and, you know, convicted of being witches, the difference in them, you know, and this is the first one that we've had. I can remember mentioned that there's been a physical disability that's been used as an otherness to sort of point the finger of blame, so to speak. The other things about the women's that are othering has been we've talked about them being unmarried or alone or poor or whatever. But it's really awful just to think whatever it is that's sort of marked you out as being not quote, normal, meant that, oh, well, you might have been in league with the devil then because, you know, you're not normal. It's just really horrifying. Anything out of the ordinary. She suffered a terrible death. She was stripped, covered with tar, oh. paraded through the town on a barrel, apparently, and she was burned as a witch, presumably after strangulation. And a short number of years after her death, the Witchcraft Act was repealed. Oh. The thought of all the people that that must have known her standing in the street watching her being paraded and degraded in that way and then killed it's just amazing dropping of civility of humanity you know it's just they must have so comprehensively thought of these women as not being human as julian said they believed it they believed that they were doing god's work when these people were accused and they believed when lies were made up about them and that's simply how they were able to do it it's absolutely horrifying and there's the witch's stone you were saying in um, little town and Dorna is there to allegedly mark the spot of where she was executed yes we'll post a link to the witch's stone and again in social media so people can see yeah. where the site of her execution was said to be okay well again i think it's really important that we are trying to think of the women and the men who were executed as witches as individuals, I just think it's really important that we keep thinking them as, as separate people that they were just living their lives and then this terrible thing happened. Absolutely. Bring it back to who we're actually talking about here yeah. and not the general story of witches. On a much brighter note, uh -huh. we have somebody joining us today. We do indeed. We are very fortunate today to be talking to Alice Tarbuck, who is a writer and academic based in Edinburgh. She has got a new book that's just come out called A Spell in the Wild, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic, which is published by Two Roads. And she's also known for being a poet as well and has performed in lots of different places and has her work published in lots of different places. So we'd really like to welcome Alice to the show. keen to talk to you about your experiences and, and very much particularly about your new book which we've just mentioned A Spell in the Wild, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic. 
And I was wondering first if you could tell our audience why it is that we have asked you in particular to come today with your your particular experience. I suppose that witchcraft for me is the kind of umbrella term that focuses a lot of my interests, both personally and from a research point of view. So the new book combines the kind of second part of the title, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic, really combines a sort of history of the occult in largely Britain and kind of folk traditions alongside, obviously, information about the witch trials. But it also charts a year in my life, month by month, looking at magical practice, what it might mean to me, um, and looking at various aspects of contemporary witch practice, everything from foraging to sex magic to how you might want to celebrate the solstices. So hopefully it kind of combines a historical, research-driven academic aspect with a kind of very approachable, personal, reflective aspect. So I suppose that hybridity is why I am with you. I think it's a really interesting thing when we're talking in fairly in abstract terms, I think, about people, women particularly, being accused of being witches in the past. It's interesting to talk to somebody now who is a witch, who would describe herself as a witch. I think it's okay to say that. It absolutely is okay it, to say that. It feels um, a bit strange. It's quite, I'm just going to name this. It's a bit weird to say to somebody, you're a witch. And I think it's because we are so laden with this past association with it being you know, always a negative thing. Yeah, negative connotations. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I certainly think that I am among a kind of ground-swelling movement of people who are feeling more comfortable to do that. If you search the witchstagram hashtags on Instagram, mm -hmm. you will see millions and millions of, of photographs of people's altars or beautiful flat lays of herbs of people describing themselves as witches. It's one of the things that I am really attached to is this idea that interest in witchcraft is cyclical. There's a critic, Peg Aloe, who describes it as the seven-year witch, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and certainly it seems to happen in times of kind of adversity. So the last time there was a big groundswell interest in witchcraft was the 2008 recession and the financial crash and since as we all know it's just all been going swimmingly since then yeah. <laughs> it's sort of maintained that momentum quite unusually we've had an unusually long period of resurgence of interest in the occult and so part of that has been younger people I mean I'm 32 I'm hardly a younger person but people who use social media a lot use the internet a lot finding that describing themselves as witches no longer feels like a a negative externally imposed word it's much more about tapping into a sense of personal power and connection with the world which I think is super interesting because I think from an academic point of view which still has a lot of negative connotations and for me anyway it's a lot like the way I would describe myself as a queer person would be because I think that is the word that best fits me but also because I think it is helpful to include myself in a group that has historically be con been considered out with society's norms and therefore called queer in a pejorative way. Mm. And in the same way, I think that witch is quite an interesting word because I think it's in the process of having a sort of, not a similar reclamation because witchcraft is not inherent, it is a chosen practice, but a sort of similar shift in adoption by a group. 
can I say that to me, all this is absolutely fascinating. I'm particularly interested in the last part of what you said, because you suggested that witchcraft isn't innate. It's something you learn. Is that right? Yes. So even historically, the idea of witches, as I found in my research, are really set apart from sorcerers, people who are doing kind of Christian based magic in the medieval period. So John Dee talking to angels. He was advisor to Elizabeth I. Witches are always, or are seen during the witch hysteria anyway, as being vessels for satanic possession, essentially, after having freely and of their own will given themselves over to the devil. So one of the key definitions of a witch, historically, has been that witches do not possess their own power. They are only able to operate through being filled with satanic power. They are conduits. They're not people in their own right who have innate power. And I think that that is very interesting because one of the ways that witchcraft is being reclaimed, and especially by marginalised groups and by as a feminist concern, is because it is a chosen area of research and religious practice Mm -hmm. rather than something that happens to you when you make a deal with the devil. And I think it's really interesting how much that word has shifted. And one of the reasons for that, from an etymological point of view, is that we have fewer subcategories that describe magical and occult practice than we used to. So in 809 AD, when Alfred the Great makes various statements against witchcraft and says that you cannot live with a witch among your society, he divides that. He's very specific about what a witch is. He says that people who sing charms, so galders, are pretty much all right. People who use herbs, so leech men and women, are fine. People who who give incantations to the dead and kind of converse with the spirits through often spoken incantation are like a bit dodgy. But witches who are operated by, occupied by negative spirits are really not okay. And I think one of the things that we have lost is those subcategories that were different but still operant right through the early modern period. The occult is no longer such a vivid presence for most of us in our lives. So we don't need those subcategories. That's fascinating to me for a particular reason, Alice. And one of them is I'm researching the historical background to the Witchcraft Act at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to work out why it was brought into force, what the need for it was. And I'm actually finding out that the need for the Witchcraft Act was in fact brought about because they were trying to get rid of what was described at that time as charmers. They were trying to get rid of people who were using their powers or their expertise to help people in ways which were considered ungodly. But it wasn't really to do with satanic possession. It wasn't actually until after the Witchcraft Act came in and when the country was really in the grip of the Reformation and the satanic panic that really things changed to talk about demonic possession. It was really a different thing. So what you're talking about when you're talking about the different subcategories sounds much more like what the original Witchcraft Act was trying to address. Yes, and what really fascinates me about that is that the charmers, 
who deal in what we would call atropaic magic, so magic that charms against evil, would have largely considered themselves to be not ungodly people. Yes. Um, And there is this fascinating distinction in history, which we find so difficult to understand now in our kind of increasingly non-religious society, which is that if you are doing magic against the devil or witches or people cursing you or people taking things, bringing misfortune upon you in whatever way that is practical or metaphysical, you are not a witch. So burying, you know, like including shoes in the fabric of buildings, which was considered lucky or making witch marks, which we still see in barns in Pennsylvania as a tradition. They're very beautiful. We're not considered to be witchcraft. They were, in fact, often anti the devil and all these things. But of course, the godly state is threatened by people who act outside the edicts of Christian rule, essentially. Because, of course, if you are acting in a way that protects people against superstition and people are employing you to do that, then that is a form of idolatry. Often Mm -hmm. it can be considered a form of heresy. But most crucially, it supposes the existence and lived reality of certain forms of negative influence, demonic, satanic, superstitious, whatever, occult, and therefore cracking down on the people who work against those things is an attempt to crack down on the belief in those things. So if you're working against something, but the state is trying to get you to believe that those things don't exist or shouldn't exist, then you're also in the wrong for trying to assist people who Mm. believed in them. Absolutely. Because you can't say that they're not real if everybody in the village pays so-and-so to come and draw something on their lintel once a year. And these people, these charmers were of use. I mean, some of the old charms that I hear talk about are love charms, wellness charms to effectively a, a, a sort of, I suppose, a blessing for the family. Or I'm probably using the wrong word, but, you know, something to keep your family safe, those sorts of things. But they were, what I'm reading about anyway, it appears that these were positive things to help people. Yeah, absolutely. And you've, you've got to remember that at the time, there are precious few things to help people. There is no welfare state. There is no medicine remains in its infancy and is an expensive, you know, there is no free health care. There is no guarantee that your children will live or survive. The world is far more tied to the idea of the wheel of fortune, that things can come and go, that fate acts upon us all rather than being you know, our our lives are not so much in our hands historically. So those charms are essentially the non-Christian equivalent of certain types of prayer. And the difficulty, and I think you can draw parallels with the cracking down on indulgences in the medieval period issued by the Pope to forgive sins and often sold fraudulently, because the church would not like you to believe that there is any other way of controlling the world and your fate other than appealing to the mercies of God, that there is something going on which is not just God's will in the world, which are, we have to remember, for a lot of the time that we're talking about, still in Latin and therefore not actually always understandable by the people who are attending church services. We are in a position where to say, oh, I'd like a love spell or I'd like a love charm. I'd like a wellness charm against this toothache that I have 
implies that there are other forces at work, that these people can have the power of benediction and blessing. And of course, the church would like to regulate very strictly who is able to do those things. The church was effectively wanting a monopoly for God. You can't get well other than by praying yeah. to God. You can't be protected other than by praying to God. give your money and to the church. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. The money must go to them instead of people who are independent mm-hmm. and charmers. That's absolutely fascinating stuff. Alice, one of the things that I found really fascinating about your book was something right at the very beginning where you tell a story about something that happened to you some years ago, which maybe led you to the way that your life is just now. I was wondering if you could retell that story for our listeners. Absolutely. So I used to live in London and work for a publishing company. And one day when I was walking home, a fox essentially met me at the entrance to the tube um, and then walked along very quietly behind me. I didn't notice him for a while, as if keeping me company. I thought he was a dog. And then waited for me to go in and shut my door and sort of stayed outside my house. And I was quite new to living in London. And I knew that urban foxes were braver, even than the ones in Edinburgh. So I just thought maybe this happened to everybody, but I was a bit sort of perturbed. So I spoke about it the next day at work. I sort of wanted everybody, you know, I said, does anyone else have this happen? And one of my colleagues, who was this really deadpan guy, looked at me and said, well, no, it's because you're a witch, Alice. That's why these things happen to you. (laughs) And how did you take that Um, from him? I went, essentially, oh, I, that'll be right. (laughs) And then got on with my day. But it sort of made me think, I think it's one of those things that, to sort of butcher the Robert Burns idea, that we don't have the gift of seeing ourselves as others see us an awful lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So when somebody says well, this is how I see you, it can stick in your head. And it sort of united for me a lot of the things that I had been doing ever since I was little, things that I'd been interested in my whole life. So it sort of made a lot of sense to me that I was one of those people who told everybody to light candles in their windows during the the solstices. And I, I was one of those people who very much enjoyed learning about what could be foraged for and eaten and preserved. And what the symbolic qualities of plants and kind of natural matter was. And he was very interested in creating essentially symbolic registers through which my life was lived in a very sort of practical way. And I grew up with Buffy, you know, I'm a, I'm, I was a kid in the 90s, which was one of the last times we had a kind of witchcraft interest in the media. Mm-hmm. And I've always been fascinated by you know, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Craft, you know, had a teenage witch phase, I think, as a lot of people did. And then sort of kept bits of it that had felt really effective and important to me, but never thought of it as witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until my colleague said that, that I thought, oh, maybe that's what I am doing. and, And maybe that's okay. And I think it was the convergence of those two thoughts that really let me start thinking about contemporary witchcraft from a kind of serious research-led. What impact did that have on you on in a sort of a daily living your life sort of? Well, I think it's had a sort of a gradual but considerable impact because it, it sort of gave me permission in a funny old way, not that you need permission from other people, 
But it gave me permission in a funny old way to be curious and to investigate and to find things that felt good for me to do. And I certainly don't have a daily practice. I don't know anyone who is organized in almost any religion well enough to have a daily practice. But I do try to live with a kind of general interest. And I do do things like observe the moon phases and I I observe Sabbaths and I have an altar in my house that I use as a quiet space to talk to the world, much like people who have maybe a meditation corner Mm -hmm. or a really kind of quiet, nice place in their house to go and be. So I think it has started, it started impacting my life in those ways. And it also gave me permission to talk about it with people and find like-minded people, which I think is a huge thing, even if you're not someone who wants to practice magic or witchcraft or whatever it is communally, it can be nice just to have people to talk to about these things. The internet has been fantastic from that perspective. The amount of people, witches, uh, women and men perhaps, that are on Instagram. And we very recently took a step into the unknown and joined TikTok as Witches of Scotland on TikTok. You did, you did, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Because I live with my teenage children, I very much did not join TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still to see, but I am looking to see the huge witchcraft community on there as well. It's absolutely huge. Mm I think it would be really great as well if we could get your take on what you think of the campaign. I mean, do you agree that the witches of Scotland should be pardoned and apologised and that there should be a memorial to them? Absolutely. I think that the victims of any essentially genocide, whatever the scale, mm-hmm. um, should be pardoned officially and have a proper memorial. I think that the memorial on the Castle Esplanade is an absolute disgrace. Isn't it? It's, yeah. isn't it? it's absolutely outrageous. The quote, some use their exceptional knowledge for evil purposes. I mean, that's just outrageous. That's a real kind of like, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry well, you feel that way about my action. It's not nice at all. It's very unpleasant. It implies the existence of actual occult action on the behalf of any of those accused of it mm-hmm. during that period for which there is literally zero evidence. Absolutely. The accused witches during the witch hysteria were not witches. There is no evidence that these people ever acted to effect occult change on anybody else other than confessions gathered under torture, which, as we all know, are not a reliable source of anything. No, indeed. And would not be accepted as fact if they were to emerge today. And so these people who we are memorialising and writing back to and celebrating are not our forebears in the occult. They are victimised groups of people. And I think that a memorial needs to reflect back that there is a difference between what people call you and what you are if you are an early modern victim of the witch trials. That's just a beautiful exposition of what the Witches of Scotland campaign is about, is just trying to show that there were people going about their lives, perfectly ordinary lives, who were plucked from those lives in the middle of an absolute hysteria and Mm -hmm. thrown into one of the most horrific nightmares that anyone can possibly imagine. So we're really, really grateful. And we hope, we very much hope that other people 
who practice witchcraft as well will support the campaign. That's something that we really hope that people will do. Because I have talked to someone who practices witchcraft down in England, and she got in contact with me to check whether or not we were seeing that witchcraft was something which was illegitimate or didn't exist. And I said, no, my only focus in setting up the campaign was to ensure that the miscarriage of justice, which was carried out to these people, where witchcraft was used as a tool of persecution against people, was mm-hmm. made right. It wasn't, it wasn't the issue of witchcraft itself. It was whether or not the idea of witchcraft should be used as a tool of persecution. And she was relieved to find that out. Now, Alice, I believe you have one of your poems that you're going to read to us that's pertinent to this. Yes, so I was commissioned to write this poem by, there is an anthology which is having a reprint at the moment called Umbrellas of Scotland, where poets and writers have been asked to write poems about the places that they live, places that are important to them. And I was really delighted to be asked by Russell Jones to write about the witch's memorial. So this poem will be in that upcoming anthology and is the result of that commission. So I will read it for you now. Exceptional knowledge. Exceptional knowledge is the moment you sit in the kitchen with your own two hands. Understand that nobody else is coming. Understand it's use them or get nothing. Exceptional knowledge is the form of your unwanted noticing. Which blood-backed coughs will stick? Which cows are falling ill and when they will get worse? A curse is cast by speaking out. A curse is cast by keeping your mouth still. Do you know how grubby and small it is, this life? Hygieia and Asclepius can take a hike, weighted out by Surgeon's Hall. Let the rest get on with colds and babies, ordinary mortal business, trying your best, then going up in flames. Have any of us ever wished our kind nothing but good? Have any of us never thought, I'll put a limp in your gate, I'll bury your name deep, I'll damp your woodpile, stamp your embers, steal your sleep, your coin, I'll send you lice, I'll drown your bloody ship, your bloody wife. Burnt girls don't need live men's words to speculate their good intentions. They need witness against forgetting. They need graves so we can bring libations so they never thirst again. Thanks, Alice. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to reading that in the anthology and we'll have details of that that we'll we'll tweet out to people so people can find it. It's still such an incredibly relevant topic, isn't it? It's horrifying. It really is. It's really not gone away, I think. I'm really glad though, to see, like you were saying, that the tide has turned and that being a witch isn't seen as being necessarily a negative now by lots of different people. And it's being seen as a positive connection with nature often as well. And it's been really great to talk to you today about what your thoughts are on this whole issue. Yeah, we're really, really delighted to have spoken to you, Alice. Your poem is absolutely beautiful. I'm going to take that away and reflect on it. And the book itself, for me, has been absolutely fascinating. I can say as somebody who themselves doesn't think of themselves as a spiritual person at all, but coming from my background, and in particular, I subscribe this to my Irish background, 
my ability to get myself involved in acting in a superstitious way is quite strangely different from the other part of my life, which is rational and sceptical. And I was saying to Zoe that when I was reading your book and you were talking about an altar, I was thinking, I don't have an altar. That's just not something that I would have. And it actually transpires that I have in my own house three statues that I bought when I was a very young woman. And they are the Chinese statues for health, wealth and prosperity. And I keep them and always keep them in a certain order on my mantelpiece. And I also, when I find a penny, when I pick up a penny and find it, I always just take the penny and put it there. And I've got no idea why I do it, but it's something that I do. I realise that, in fact, I may actually have a sort of an altar. And I've always had one since Mm -hmm. I've never had a house by myself right in the centre of my own living room. Yes. And I think we do this. I think humans have certain needs to express the irrational parts of their lives, the bits they can't control, and to take comfort in certain ritual activities. And I think, I'm not someone who believes that everything is witchcraft. There's a bit of a a sort of um, trend at the moment. You know, making a cup of tea or having a bath is witchcraft. It's not. (laughs) But those little unexplained things we do so often are. I mean, my mum, who, you know, is an atheist, although she has some sort of secret witchcrafty stuff that she also doesn't square against the rational part of herself. She said she was horrified that when I was born and taken out in my pushchair, people would put money in my pram. Oh, yes. Hanseling, being hanseling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like strangers in the queue sometimes. Why why are you horrified by that? Because it wasn't something she'd ever experienced before. Ah, right, okay. She had no idea that it was a thing. And she was saying, why are people being so weird? And then when she went away and did some research, she was like, oh, it's a superstition. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I understand now. And it's that fascinating thing about we have certain compulsions, I think, that guide us through our lives, even if we think of ourselves as very rational. I mean, I'm an academic. I'm in a lot of ways a very critical brain, a very rational brain. I'm interested in critically examining evidence and always have been. But it doesn't, I don't think those two bits of you have to be as far divorced as we often think they do. Well, certainly your book has definitely given me food for thought and I'm really, really enjoying it. So I would recommend it to anybody. So we'll just mention the title of it again. It's got such a beautiful cover as well. I really love it. It's called A Spell in the Wild, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic. Alice, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it was lovely. And I will be tuning in to all the rest of them as well. I've already been um, really enjoying it. Thanks for listening to episode seven. If you have enjoyed the show, please rate us or send us a tweet. We'd love to hear from you. And we look forward to you joining us in episode eight.